when my alarm went off this morning, I almost didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> it was really cold. <laughs> so I know you also have that experience. It's really cold. So you are the brave ones. And I'm happy to see you here this morning. Especially those who are wearing sandals today. Yes. You are the true Floridians. <laughs> so two weeks ago, we kicked off the series on the book of Samuel with the theme, Yahweh is King. In the Hebrew, there are four letters. We call it Tetragrammaton. It's the equivalent to English. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh is King. It's the name of the God in the Old Testament. And we opened the story where we are led to see how God operates in the world, both on a macro level, national, the world, Israel, and on a micro level at the same time with Hannah and Elkanah. And we talk about this couple. This couple have been praying to God and, and seeking God, asking for one child because they were, um, Hannah was barren. And not knowing that she was asking for something and it was in God's plan all along. So those, so those times of weeping and pouring herself to God came into fruition. The story of Hannah for the first two chapters of the book of Samuel taught us that God is working actively but mysteriously to bring about the restoration to everything that He created good. And so if you just simply sit down and think about all the series of events that happen in your life and you look back and you see God is really working in my life. God has led me here today in the here and now and all those past things that happened in my life are led to here because God has a plan for me. Somebody say amen to that. Now, if this is your first time to hear about this, I'd like to invite you to the story of the scriptures. This is the book of Samuel. And today I want to talk to you about God and what happens when we don't take God seriously. Now, whenever we think about God's will or God's plan, there's always a presumption that what God decides to do, He will make sure it will happen. And whenever he does that, it means he means business. And if that is so, we have to take God seriously. So this portion of the story of Samuel tells us precisely that. So here's the scenario. The transition would go from Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel to Eli and his two wicked sons. So the spotlight now moves from one end to another. Let me uh, start with 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. It's like a, almost a definitive statement for the two sons of Eli. It will be like something that's in their grave, in the tombstone. The worthless sons of Eli. They did not know the Lord. Now, right from the get-go, the story opens up with a problem. If there's anything to know about the sons of Eli is that they are worthless men. Now, they're not worthless because they have a, no job or they're lazy. They are worthless for other reasons. Now, we have to understand that Eli was the high priest. And being the high priest, he's the one in charge of the temple. But at this point, according to commentaries, he's very old. He was somewhere between 95 to 98 years old. So that means majority of his job was passed on already to his sons. And so his sons are doing his job for him. 
But the scriptures say that his sons are worthless men. Now, the second statement gives us an understanding of what worthless means. It says, they did not know the Lord. Now, hang on. Wait a minute. How can these two sons of Eli, priests of God, did not know the Lord? How is that possible? I would suppose that these guys grew up in church. They grew up in Sunday school. They know everything about the story of Noah and the story of the flood and the story of Adam and Eve. They know everything about, there is to know about the Ten Commandments and God. They know everything about the temple and the Torah and, and the Ark of the Covenant and all the mysterious stories about it. And yet, they did not know the Lord. How is that possible? This is very interesting, to say the least. I think it is not that they have no knowledge of the Lord. They have information about Yahweh. It's that, that they do not believe in Yahweh. Those two are different things. It's possible to know something about and it's also possible not to know God. It's possible you know about God, but it's also possible that you do not have a personal knowledge of God. I'm going to be a little bit technical here. So the word know in the scriptures is yada. Now, this is not the English, you know, when you're just talking about something, yada, yada, yada. This is Hebrew yada. Yada means to know. But this know connotes a deep understanding of an intimate and personal knowledge of someone. In fact, the first time it was used in the book of Genesis was in the context of Adam and Eve. And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. That's, that's a, a very intimate kind of knowing someone. It's you, you really know someone personally, intimately. No, it's not just you know something about her or about him. It's you knew her or him. A very intimate and personal thing. It carries the idea that knowing is an experience. It's experiencing someone, which means these two wicked sons of Eli know about God, but they have no experience or encounter of Yahweh. They must have read about the books of Moses. They must have read from one page to another, but they have no real encounter with Yahweh. Now, let me tell you this. Knowledge alone does not make one a follower of God. Knowledge alone does me means nothing to God. Knowledge alone does not set us. Means there was one particular day, a day in your life, where you can say, that day I have encountered Jesus Christ. I have encountered the Lord. I believed in Him. I decided to follow Him. And it changed my life. There's a transformation in my life because of that day. If you follow along that line, therefore, discipleship is not about information. It's about transformation. Say amen to that. Let me say that again. Discipleship, Christianity, religion is about relationship. It's not about information. It's about transformation. The goal why we are here is not to feed you with all the information here. Because you can read this from the Bible yourself. You don't have to come here. But we are here gathering together in worship because we want to be transformed. What happens is that, what this means is that you did not just know God because you read a couple of verses here and there. It means you know Jesus because like any other followers of Jesus and his disciples, you had an encounter with God. Encounter is important because it's the main factor for transformation. We call that spiritual birth. 
That is what we have in common. That is what we share. That's why I call you brothers and sisters, because you had the same spiritual birth. I cannot call my neighbor a brother. He's a neighbor. I can only call my brother brother because we came from a, the same mother. We all came from God. If you are also, or if you had an encounter, a rebirth, a spiritual birth, this is what Jesus talked to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3, verse 3. So I would say knowledge alone is incomplete. Spiritual birth is necessary. And the two sons of Eli did not know the Lord, even though they were priests of God. So I'm going to have to ask myself, or maybe ask yourself, Will I be able to look back and say, there's a definite time in my life where I can say, I heard the gospel, I believed it, and I decided to follow Jesus, and it changed my life. Would you be able to have that kind of story? See, anyone can try to speak like a Christian, live like a Christian, sing like a Christian, even pray like a Christian. But eventually, that one will get tired pretending to be like one. Because the truth is, there's really no spiritual birth. If there's no spiritual birth, then everything else is an act. It's just pretend. That's one of my favorite, uh, one of the favorite words my daughter would always say, pretend. It literally means Belial. I'm not a Belial, I'm not worthless. Now, there's no English equivalent to Belial. Now stay with me now, it's gonna be a little bit technical. But, what Hannah is saying is that when, he, when she used the word Belial, worthless, this was, this was used in the ancient context of cursing someone. So today, we curse someone by saying, you son of a toot, toot, toot. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> okay? But in the ancient time, they say, you son of Belial, or you son or daughter of Belial. Belial has a connotation of being wicked. Okay? So when, when Hannah is saying, I'm not a worthless woman, what she's saying, I'm not a wicked woman. I'm not here to disrespect God. I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring my, my heart out. And so when the narrator is saying, the sons of Eli are worthless men, he's saying, the, the sons of Eli are wicked men. I mean, these are, are priests of God, and they are wicked men. Now, if you think about wicked, what this means is that they're they're bad to the bone. So if you're familiar with, you know, a series of, you know, murders, uh, 48 hours or, or those series where they're talking about serial killers, I mean, bad to the bone. These are people, uh, you may be thinking about, you know, the big guys, the big dictators like Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin or Pol Pot in Southeast Asia or Mao Zedong in China. These guys have eliminated, murdered millions of people, and they were able to sleep comfortably at night. There's no remorse whatsoever. Bad to the bone, wicked. That's what we're, we're talking about here. So that means, here's Hannah in the temple. The temple is holy. God's presence in the temple. God is holy. And Eli thought she was drunk. And Hannah's saying, I'm not worthless. I'm not wicked. I'm not here for contempt, I respect the holiness of God. And yet this same word, worthless, was used for the sons of Eli. How are they worthless? How did they treat God with contempt? Here in verse 13, it says, 
The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it in a pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now, this is very interesting. So the ritual of worship in the Old Testament is kind of different how we do it today. They would do it by animal sacrifices. This is, uh, some commentators would say, that this is where we get the word potluck. So the idea is that there's a big pot and they are boiling the meat because they want to burn the fat first. The fat belongs to the Lord. And here comes the priest or the servant of the priest and he would thrust his three-pronged fork. We're not talking about the red latex guy with the horn not that guy, but the priest or the servant's priest would thrust his fork and anything that comes up, he would say, this is the will of the Lord. This is for us. This is a violation of the offering of God because they have to burn the fat first. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, in verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast for we will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, because that's the protocol, uh, Leviticus 3, Leviticus 7, Numbers 18. And if the man said, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. I mean, this is totally disrespectful. Thus... This is the narrator. Thus, the sins of the young men, the sons of Eli, was very great. Now, this, this phrase, very great, is fat. Very great in the sight of the Lord, or weighty. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now, that's a, that's a difficult word. They treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. You see, we just went through the book of Revelation last year. We talked about the utter holiness of God. We, we said that John saw a vision of God on the throne, surrounded by angels and elders, and everyone was bowing and throwing their crowns and worshiping God because God is holy. That is the, the definition, the description of how holy God is. I mean, it also defines in the book of Revelation that God lives in an approachable light. His, his face was shining so bright. If we will have a vision of God, it's like we will be consumed. Prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 had also a vision of God. And he feared for his life because he thought he's going to die looking at the vision of God. And yet here are the sons of Eli. They have no regard whatsoever. I mean, they have utter contempt to the, to the offering of God. Here are the two sons of Eli. Now, think about this. The temple, or the tabernacle, was set in a huge tent, all right? The huge tent is, is divided by a simple curtain, the holy of holies and the holy place. Outside the tent is where they cook the meat. So that means the sons of Eli who treat God with contempt knew for a fact that God was just on the other side of the tent. And yet with audacity and rudeness and disrespect, they treat God with contempt. Now, if you, if you were thinking, 
did this happen uh, accidentally? I, I would not suppose so. I would say that this was deliberate offense against the Almighty. They've been doing that for years. Now, I've witnessed a couple of times where a court judge will announce contempt of court to someone who will not acknowledge and respect the proceedings of the court. See, here in the state of Florida, direct contempt of court is a criminal offense, which means it's jail time. I cannot imagine Hafni and Phineas treating God with contempt. In every worship offering, they would do this. We're not talking here about, about presidents. We're not talking here about monarchs. We're talking about here about God the Almighty. We're, we're talking about here the creator of the universe. In every Jewish prayer, they always begin with saying, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Blessed be the Lord God Almighty, the creator of the whole world. That is the God they serve, and yet they treat God with contempt. We're not just talking here about somebody else. We're talking here about the God who flooded the earth and judged the world. But he's also the one who created the world. This is the almighty God we're talking about. And how is this two sons of Eli treat God with contempt? This is, the, this is the God we're talking about who gave Ten Commandments and said, do not worship idols, do not use my name in vain, honor the Sabbath day because it's holy, simply because God himself is a holy God. I think there's a huge disconnect here between Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and their understanding of who God is. So they have all the knowledge of God, but they have no experience encounter with God. Again, the protocol of ritual was to burn the fat. The fat belongs to the Lord. So that means contempt of God is like robbing God of what belongs to Him. Taking the fat is like robbing God. Now, I know this is a little bit crazy, but can you just imagine, just for a second, Jesus walking in the streets of San Francisco or Miami getting robbed? Can you imagine that? I know it's a lousy example, but... That's the whole idea of this, robbing God for what belongs to him. That means they don't care. Now I have this, this idea why, why they have been doing this for years. I'm guessing that they think God doesn't care. Why? Because they would think, because they only have this information about God, but no encounter with God. I think they thought that since God sits comfortably on his throne in the most holy place, and he's served every day, he doesn't care what happens outside the temple. And therefore, they can do whatever they want outside of the tabernacle or the temple. Folks, this is a lie. This is the same lie that we believe today. Listen. Just because it's not Sunday, just because in the particular day and night you're alone, just because nobody is looking at you because you're alone in your room, does it mean God doesn't know what you're doing? Somebody say amen to that. Amen. See, I think if we believe that lie, we believe in a limited God. We don't believe in the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible the God of the Bible is said to be omnipresent, omniscient, everywhere present. Technical terms would be he's almighty, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he can do everything, nothing is impossible to him. 
He's omniscient. That means he knows everything. There's no secrets to him. Omnipresent means he's everywhere present. Everywhere you go, he's there. If you believe in this, this kind of God, and therefore, there's no secret that we can do. We cannot just believe that, you know, God is, God is hiding somewhere, or God is busy, or that, you know, these things. See, because the God of the scriptures, the God who revealed himself to Mo, Noah, to Moses, to Abraham, to Jacob, this is the God who sees, who acts, and responds in prayer. And if you believe in this kind of God, and you better believe it, listen, God knows your secrets. Now, this is heavy in my heart as a pastor of this church because I am accountable to God with regard to your spiritual life. And I take this very seriously. And this compels me to labor and study in the Word all throughout the week so that I can preach the gospel accurately to the point that sometimes... Uh, the sermon becomes my, not sometimes, but every day the sermon becomes my constant preoccupation. That sometimes I would even have to tell my, my children that I have to concentrate on, on my study. You know, small kids, kids, they would always love to play with you. And so sometimes my daughter would come to me and say, let's, let's play. And I would say, I have to, Daddy, I have to study. I mean, this is, I, I cannot afford not to study I cannot afford to miss. I cannot afford to be inaccurate with the messages of God for us. Because this is the basis on how we grow. You see, there will always be time when fasting physically is beneficial to our physical health. But there will never ever be a time when fasting from the Word of God will ever help us grow maturely in Christ. Would you say amen to that? With this, I have acknowledged the fact that ultimately, we are all responsible to God individually. And I have accepted also the fact that I can only offer spiritual food, but I cannot make you eat it. I can tell you what the Bible says, but I cannot make you believe it. And Eli, the priest, knew the same thing about his sons. So he confronted his wicked sons in verse 22. He said, the Bible said, now Eli was very old. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. This is terrible. This is wicked. They have, they have turned the temple into a brothel. They've been having affairs and having sex in the temple. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. In verse 25, it says, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's one of the most, one of the scariest things I've ever read. When we, when we talk about what is God's plan, what is God's will, we're always expecting something to be beautiful, something good. I mean, God's will. And when you read about this, God's will can also be devastating. Because God's will for them is to put them to death. Because they have reached their limits. It was the will of God to put them to death because they have become worthless, evil, wicked, bad to the bone. You see, there's, the only time God gives up is when men have become worthless, of no use. 
It is when we have reached the limits of God's patience. It is when, when God says, enough. And I can imagine, before God told Noah to build the boat, it was because the world is getting so wicked. In fact, if you read the book of Genesis, chapter 6, it would say that every inclination of man's heart becomes evil. It's evil continually. It has reached the limits of God's patience. I would say no one is indispensable to God. Priesthood is a privilege and no one is entitled to it. So Hophni and Phinehas has become so wicked that the narrator said they would not listen to the voice of their father. This is interesting. Their father was the high priest. This is the guy who speaks to God. This is the guy you go to when you want to know God's will. And yet they would not listen to the voice of their father. Because it was God's will to put them to death. When I was studying this, I got stuck. I cannot move on. I cannot understand and reconcile the fact that these two boys grew up around the temple, surrounded by everything that is holy, brought about by every measure of godliness. And for Pete's sake, these are sons of the high priest, Eli. They knew about the Torah. They knew about the will of God. And yet, right now, the Bible is saying they are wicked. Think about nurture and nature. They have both, and yet they are wicked. How did they come to this? Now, along these lines, I cannot help but think of our kids in the church who grew up in our church. And when they grew up, they left the church with everything that they once believed in. This is a scary thing, and this is not only happening in one church or another. This is happening all over the world, especially here in America. Verse 26, it says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Suddenly, there was a shift from the worthless sons of Eli to Samuel who was growing up in favor of the Lord. Now this opened my eyes. I know there's something God is doing. He will not let this wickedness just continue. He's raising up somebody to replace the two sons of Eli. See, the two brothers were villain. If you read the story, because this is a story, Samuel was the good guy. But you see, in the story, Samuel was not the main guy. He's not the Fernando Pud Jr. or the Lito Lapid. The real good guy, the main guy, the real protagonist is God. Because he's the one who's doing justice in the world. He's taking out these two wicked men and putting up someone to replace them. Because God is the one who's bringing the good guy. And I realized that in the same way, faith is not passed on from parents to children. Faith is more caught than taught. Faith in God is something that we all have to go through and therefore it's a mistake to assume that faith can easily be transferred to my son or my daughter or my wife. You, you cannot transfer faith. Hophni and Phinehas grew up as priests, but Samuel was called specifically by God from a different family, from different parents. Because real priesthood is just like faith, is a calling. Because religion and spirituality can never be a business franchise. It cannot be passed down as an inheritance. Listen, 
True spirituality is not about having information. True spirituality is about transformation. This should be an eye-opener to all of us who claim to be followers of, of Jesus. Guys, we can only expect true godliness from those who have undergo, undergone spiritual birth. That means we cannot expect someone to live righteously or godly, if he, even if he or she professes to be a Christian, unless there was a spiritual birth. And this rebirth must be proven by transformation. We're not claiming to be perfect here. Nobody's perfect. Kui Edwin is near perfect. Except for the losing hair. But, but this guy has proven himself. See, we're not saying that we are all perfect. We're saying we also have struggled with sin. But what we're saying is that because we have a genuine encounter with God, those who, have, who had spiritual birth still make mistakes. But every time they make mistakes, there's a genuine feeling of sorrow, of repentance. They don't enjoy doing it. And because they have begun to desire holiness, they struggle to keep doing it. Saints are followers who still make mistakes and strive to get away with it. Let me tell you what's the opposite. Hypocrisy is when you claim to be perfect and godly and Christian in whatever that you say, while in fact you are living a double life and you are enjoying it. Therefore, if you live hypocritically, it will be presumptuous to think that God doesn't know your secrets. Now, I may not know your secrets, but God knows. And this is the bad news. You cannot keep doing it forever. Because sooner or later, you will reach your limits as God has judged Hophni and Phinehas. See, we are called, this is interesting. In the New Testament, we are called to be kingdom of priests and kings. We are priests as well as Hophni and Phinehas. We're not doing what they're doing in the Old Testament ritual, but we are in the same way doing that to mediate with God and the unbelievers. So in that sense, we are priests as a church. And if we are priests, we are accountable to God in many ways. So at the end of this chapter, it's very interesting. A man of God came to Eli. He has without a name. The Bible did not say his name. And he confronted Eli. And this part of the story is very conflicting to me. Because as we know, Eli was the high priest. This is the guy who speaks to God. This is the guy, supposedly, who God speaks to and what he wants his people to know. This guy is the mediator. He's the high priest. And yet, at this point, there was this random, nameless man who had to give him the message from God. What this means is that, at this point, God is not talking to Eli anymore. Now, now here's the thing. Eli was the high priest. You would probably say he has a PhD in spirituality. And yet, right now, he cannot hear from God. His ears have become dull of hearing. This even gets interesting because this is what it says in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices? This is God telling Eli. And my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. You see this? 
the reason why his son stopped listening to him, the reason why God stopped talking to him was due to the fact that he himself is deeply involved in corruption. He was caught red-handed. His hand was on the cookie jar. He is as guilty as his sons. Now, now remember, his sons in the middle of the offering would come in and plunge their fork and take whatever they want and rob God of what belongs to God. And those land in the plates of Eli. He's part of the corruption. In fact, in chapter 3, the Bible would describe Eli to be very fat. That's the reason why he died. He died, his chair flipped backwards, he died because he was too heavy. That's what the Bible said. What I'm saying is that he enjoyed it. He was part of it. I can imagine Eli every day would be delivered raw meat, barbecue, and steak. Mm, it's good. He would be handed medium rare. It's good. So, so he would overlook the sins of his sons. He would say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. As long as people worship God, as long as people offer to God, it doesn't matter what my sons do. See, this corruption runs between father and sons, and they have made the worship in Shiloh a mockery. Now, Eli may have not been having sexual relations with the women in the temple, but he was complicit in the sins of his son. And if the Bible says his sons were worthless, wicked, Belial, therefore Eli himself is also wicked, worthless, and Belial. That's why God said, why do you scorn or disregard or treat my offerings like garbage with contempt? And God said, you honor your sons more than me, above me. Listen, this is a serious accusation from God. Now, Eli has decided that his sons make him happy. They gave him food. So he decides to overlook those small things. But to God, these are not small things. These are huge. I cannot help but think of churches, not just our church, but churches here in the United States and around the world whose parents go along with what their children say or go along with whatever whatever's happening with their children. Parents who would who knows that their children are sleeping around, doing drugs, being in bad company, and they would rather not say anything just to keep the peace in the house. I mean, this is a wake-up call to us as a church. Now, you may not like me after this one, but I'm going to say this out of sincerity and love for you guys. God is putting up in a standard. There's standard on our lifestyle. Because sooner or later, if we reach the limits... It's going to be bad news for us. Eli was happy because he's receiving food, but he was a bad parent because he was complicit. So the question is, do we prioritize our children above God? Can you say that if given us a choice between honoring the will of God and honoring the wishes of my children, I would always say yes to God without even thinking about it? See, our church is not exempt from this. Even people in the pews five to ten years ago 
would say that would say that it's better to be real, to be true to yourself, and come out with this newfound identity based on what they feel and what they think. See, churches today are not the same as a church before the pandemic. Before the pandemic, churches are flooded. After the pandemic, there's little attendance to nothing. Why? Because we know now who really are Christians, who are really followers of Jesus Christ, who are really into this following the will of the Lord. Now, how is this story in any way related to the whole story of the Bible? I want you to look at this story as a prophetic voice pointing to Jesus. How, how did Jesus come up here? Because the short story of Hophni and Phinehas and the corruption in the religious institution is like a signpost. It's like a street sign pointing us to the direction of Jesus Christ. See, here's the thing. Approximately 400 years of rebellion and corruption in the book of the Judges, before Hannah came and prayed for a son, and he was given Samuel. God replaced the bad guys with the good guys. This is exactly the same scenario before Jesus Christ came. There were about 400 years before Elizabeth prayed for a son. In fact, she was not even praying for a son. She gave up already. But God gave John the Baptist. And then to marry Jesus Christ. See, the same scenario, after 400 years, God would respond. And he would say, why did it take God a long time? Because I want to say this. God works mysteriously. He did not forget. But he's working intimately and mysteriously in the lives of his children. And so if, when you're praying something for something, and you may think it's taking God a long time. It doesn't mean he, he does not hear your prayer. It does not mean he's not interested and doesn't care. It just means he's doing it mysteriously in a way that you don't understand as of now. And if you look back, and you would see there are threads that's going to that direction. See, if there's one undeniable practical application of this story, I would say it's the Lord's table. Hophni and Phinehas were priests along with Eli, and they treated the holy worship and sacrifice with contempt. That's the whole thing. So God punished them by killing them in the process. Now, in the same sense, if you look at the book of Corinth, there was an issue with the Lord's table or communion or Eucharist. When Paul wrote the book of Corinth, in verse 2, he addressed the church of Corinth to be saints of the Lord. No kidding. They're called saints of the Lord. It doesn't mean they're perfect. It just means they're set apart, saints. And he also said in verses 4 to 5 that they have all the spiritual gifts imaginable. You are well equipped to grow in the Lord. You can, you can serve each other. You have all the gifts in the world, spiritual gifts. And then in chapter 3, Paul said you are God's temple. And then it runs all the way to the last chapter of the 1 Corinthians. But then in chapter 12, he addressed a very specific issue. There was a very specific issue about a plague, a certain curse that runs through the church. And if you look closely, if you read chapter 12, you will, all, you will hear a faint echo of the story of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. And how this curse is like the punishment of God to Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. This is what it says. 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. In the Old Testament, we're talking about the offerings, the body. Let a person examine himself. So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Judgment is punishment. It's a curse. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, the Bible at this point is not talking metaphorically. The Bible at this point is talking literally. Some are sick and have died just because they have treated the Lord's table with contempt. This is serious. This is something that we have to take seriously. What Paul is saying here is that the Lord's table, the Holy Communion, is the physical presence of Jesus Christ every time we partake of it. It's not just the bread and wine. It's the thing that symbolizes it, the meaning behind it. And when we do this ritual, it's not just ritual. This is exactly how God, Jesus Christ, is present with us. And so we must treat it with respect. Because whenever we partake, Christ is present with us. Christ's presence is in the bread and wine. There's a mystery behind it. And yet some people in Corinth either forget or dismiss or deliberately treat it with contempt. And so if you read this, some people would come to church in Corinth drunk. They're wasted. Or maybe from a hangover, they would come to church drunk. Paul calls this contempt. Listen, if, if you're thinking that this is all about order or the protocol in, in the Lord's Supper, if you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, it's talking about a lot of things, a lot of issues here. In fact, he talked about division in the church, gossip. He talked about power struggle, people thinking that it's politics. He also talked about sexual immorality, chapters 5 and chapters uh, 6 and 7. He also talked about idolatry. But he focused so much on sexual immorality, and then he, he tied it to chapter 12 in the issue of sanctity and holiness. What he was trying to say here is that he has itemized what sexual immorality is because if we are the temple of God, according to chapter 3, you cannot share this temple with somebody else other than God. Sexual immorality, according to Paul, is any sexual act, sexual relations outside of marriage. What that means is that if you are unmarried, if you're single, you have no business sleeping around. That means also if you're married, you have to stick to your wife. You have no business sleeping around as well. And I don't care that if you say, Pastor, we are in America, we have to be a little bit liberal, and we are in the 21st century. See, the Bible, the Bible standard of holiness does not change because we just move locations. The standards of holiness in the Bible does not change just because we are in the 21st century. See, the standards of righteousness in the Bible is the same Definition of sexual immorality in the time of Noah, in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in our time now, 2023. It's the same standards. Why? Because Yahweh is king. He sets the rules. Now, Paul made it clear that in almost all the epistles he wrote about God's presence dwelling in us, in our physical bodies. Here's the thing. If God dwells in our physical bodies, if God dwells in us because we are the temple of God, it's hard not to be holy. 
Hophni and Phinehas may have thought, nah, we don't see God. Maybe it's not real. Maybe he does, doesn't care. Eli, the high priest, would go inside the most holy place, and he would not see God there. Why? Because God is invisible. He's not made of matters like us. See, in the same way, right now, it may be presumptuous to say we are the temple of God. God's presence is here. But where is God? I cannot see God. Again, God is omnipresent. God is invisible. But the Bible affirms that he is with us and his presence is with us. And we are the temple of God. And if we are the temple of God, we must keep it holy. When we do the communion, we are saying we have invited God's presence with us. I want to say, we have to take this seriously. Here's the thing. If you're not sure about the spiritual birth I was talking about, if you're not sure if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure about your life, if you're living a double life, I would rather have you not participate in communion because I would not have you one day simply getting sick and dying just because we have violated the sanctity of the Lord's table. This is the same standards that are being asked for us right now as a church. My prayer is that we become like Samuels, growing in the Lord, being like priests of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are holy. We acknowledge that you are king of our lives. We acknowledge that you are king of the universe. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam. You are blessed because you have created the whole universe. And we are your subjects. And Father, sometimes we just forget about this one. And so we live our lives the way we want it. Father, we confess that we sin and we make mistakes. But it is your love that compels us to come back to you. Like the prodigal son, realizing that there's nowhere to go except to you. And realizing also the fact that you love us and you're waiting for us. Father, would you speak to our hearts? Would, would you please make this sermon, this message, speak and be alive in our hearts and compel us to really know you more. Not just knowing about you, but really knowing you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.